0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. Now I had told you last week that uh, we would be slowing things down. We would be focusing during Advent upon one sentence, phrase by phrase, that crosses over two verses but that at the same time gives us a picture of the glory of the gospel of Christ and really what Advent stands for. So we're going to read, uh, beginning with verse 4, just a, a few of those verses, and then come back and focus in a little bit. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, will you help us in these moments? Help us to focus upon these very few words that were so carefully chosen by you for us to hear and to meditate upon and to be obedient to. And so we pray that your spirit would be our teacher today and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you in terms of uh, the busyness of this season and trying to get all of uh, your chores done, but then also those Christmas cards, getting those out. To people, and it, you know, you think you're finished, and then you get a card from somebody, and you, it's time to send another card. Uh, well, I saw about a lady who just had not gotten any of her cards sent out. She was frustrated, but it was getting near Christmas. She had to get them out, so she rushed to the store. She went to the place where all of the picked over cards were, finally found a a box of cards that uh, had a nice picture on the front. She brought them home, addressed them, signed them all, got them in the mail, and finally had that load off of her mind because they were all gone to her friends. The load was off her mind at least Until a couple of days later, she sat down at her kitchen table where she had addressed the cards and she had a couple of the cards left over and she looked again at the picture and then opened it up because she hadn't really paid that much attention to the verse inside. And it said, this is just a note to say, a special gift is on the way. Well, what can you do at that point uh, but begrudgingly go and get gifts and send them out to all of them? Now, I tell you that story because I think that sometimes uh, people have the impression, whether they say it out loud or not, have the impression that when it comes to God giving the gift of his son, that it's kind of that kind of a gift that from his perspective he didn't have a whole lot of choice. He wanted to redeem his people and yet what could he do? He was kind of cornered and so he reluctantly sent his son. That's not the picture at all. And we must never think for a moment, that there was reluctance upon his part when it comes to the gift that he gave to us. I want us to take a look at this today, and we're going to focus on (coughs) just that one brief phrase and start with where it talks about ascending from the Father in uh, Chapter 4, verse 4 of Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, God sent. I'm stopping there. Because I think so often we just gloss over that, yes, God sent His Son. God sent forth His Son. Stop. And think about that. God sent. Let's do some theology here for a moment. We have in our doctrine the biblical belief in the Trinity, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We say that uh, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now that's on the one hand we say that. And yet I think for many of us, the picture that we have in our mind is you have, well there's the father and he's kind of the big guy and he's got all the power and then you got below him Jesus, he's the number two man. And then somewhere below Jesus is the Holy Spirit. So you got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now where do we get that? Our doctrine says that they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. What's it mean to be the same in substance? Well, what it means is that Whatever it is to be God, every attribute, every aspect, every characteristic, every power that it means to be God, the Father possesses. But every characteristic, every attribute, every aspect that it means to be God, the Son also possesses. And so does the Spirit. So that's what it means, that they are the same in substance and then equal in power and glory. So how does that fit, that they are one God, same in substance, equal in power and glory, and yet we've got this picture of the Father because we know that the Father sends the Son. The Son does the Father's bidding. He obeys the Father, and then from the Son... Comes the Spirit, the Spirit brings glory to the Son, and so on. Well, both are true in this sense. One is talking about what we call in theology the ontological trinity. You don't have to remember these terms. But what that means is in their being, in their existence, they are exactly equal. The other, the one we think of as you know, the big guy, one, two, three, is what we call the economic trinity. Now, it doesn't have to do with money or anything, but it has to do with the way they function. So that, although they are exactly equal, they do have different roles. And that's where we get the idea of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Now, in the New Testament. It gives us an illustration, actually. It teaches teaches us about marriage from the way the Trinity functions together. Because within marriage, you have the same thing. With a husband and a wife, they are exactly equal in the eyes of God. They are image bearers of God. They are co-heirs with one another, with Christ. It took just as much of Uh, Christ's death on the cross for the husband as the wife. And yet, they have another relationship, and that is one that includes roles. And that's where we read about headship and submission to one another and that type of a thing. So, that's where we get the idea and, and the focus here that the Father sent. But all the while, I want you to keep in mind that it wasn't as though Jesus was doing something he didn't want to do. This was something that was decided. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, why was he sent? Well, he was sent as a mediator. Look over at 1 Timothy chapter 2. He was sent as a mediator. In verse 5 of 1 Timothy 2, it says this, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now what's the point of a mediator? This is essential. A mediator is one who goes between two people in order to settle a dispute. That's what it is in our world. Uh, When I was up in Pennsylvania, if I was teaching this, I would have been talking about uh, the way the unions and the uh, management work together. Whenever it was time for a strike, uh, they ultimately usually would end up calling in a mediator. We tend to think of it uh, uh, having to do with, uh, you know, our sports figures who are trying to negotiate a new contract or their contract is up. And so they bring in a mediator and uh, that mediator then makes a decision and he says uh, he's worth this much money and you've got to pay him this much and so on. The problem with all of these illustrations is that uh, they, they break down and they are not sufficiently serious compared to what it's talking about here in 1 Timothy. Modern mediators risk little except maybe unpopularity with one side or the other. One side being disappointed or the other side. In fact, mediators uh, do pretty well. Some of them, they get paid a lot of money to be mediators. But when it comes to Christ, He was a mediator at the cost of his life. Now, who are the parties in this mediation? Here's again where the other illustrations break down. You have God, the Father, who is the offended one. Who's the other party? Well, we are. But we're the ones that offended. How did we offend? By sin. And so, what does the Father do? He provides a mediator, not just to talk it out, to come to some agreement, because there's nothing that we, the offenders, can do to to get back in relationship with the Father. And so what we have is the Father providing for the offense. That's what makes Christ as the mediator different than anything else. We see. He was the perfect mediator. He perfectly represented God because he was fully God. And he perfectly represented man because he was fully man. Now, where'd the plan come from? It was decided, the term we use is, in the councils of eternity. Again, this wasn't where God was backed into a a corner We read, and I can just read this to you, 1 Peter 1, verse 19 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of the Lamb, without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So Jesus was preexistent before He came to earth. His coming was planned before the world came into existence. This wasn't a last-minute plan right before the cross or anything like that but you have the Father the Son and the Spirit negotiating coming up with the plan now what did they know about this plan well they knew that Jesus who was going to carry out the plan would be humiliated every step of the way From his birth all the way through his death and burial, they knew that Jesus would be rejected by most, including his family. They knew that he would suffer. They knew that he would suffer all of the pain of the penalty for all of the sin for all of his people for all time on the cross. And they knew when they were formulating this plan that he would be murdered. And yet, they agreed to the plan. Now on what basis could the Father actually justify sending Jesus knowing that? Now here's where we need to dwell just for a minute. In John 3 what? 16. John 3:16. For God so loved That's the intensity. So loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, that's the only explanation. It was an intense, in-depth love that caused the Father to send his one and only. Now, think of that. What would it take for you, if you have one child, or even if you have many children, what would it take for you to agree to give up that child to suffer and to die for others. You wouldn't do it. And I wouldn't do it. This week, I I struggled trying to figure out an illustration to illustrate this point. And I couldn't come up with one. But that's the point. There's nothing that we know of that can compare to his expression of love because we wouldn't do it. We don't love others enough to do that. And yet, that's what he did for us. It's a love that we couldn't possibly deserve. John Owen said this The gospel isn't just God loves us, it is He loves us at the cost of His own Son. We don't deserve it, and that's where grace comes in it's undeserved favor. There was a king who wanted to express his admiration for one of his soldiers. He had a very valuable goblet that had jewels all over it. And so he decided to give that soldier his own goblet. When the soldier arose to come and get this gift to him, the soldier said this with shame, this is too great a gift for me to receive the king said, it's not too great for me to give. You see, here's the point. That gift from God is not because we are so good or we deserve it, but that gift is about what a giver he is. It's about his generosity and his grace towards us. And let's look further at the nature of the gift that was sent. The sent one was God. Once again, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now through the years, I've had uh, a number of opportunities to talk with folks that are members of cults. Sometimes it's been in my living room. Sometimes it's been at my front door or out in the street, sometimes in my office. I've had numerous conversations. In every conversation, at some point, I will ask them, who is Jesus Christ? Because that's the key. Usually, they will say something like this. Jesus is the Son of God and Savior you might say, well, that sounds good. Why you say that they're in a cult if they think he's a son of God and a savior? That's why you need to ask the next question. The next question is, is Jesus God? And if they are true to their beliefs, they will say, He's not God, He is the Son of God. And at that point, to be fair to them, you need to say, That puts you outside of the pale of Christianity. Jesus' deity. His being fully God is what truly separates Christianity from cults. You get real honest, we see that some of those cult members are nice people. And they are. A lot of them very moral people, family-oriented people. But the bottom line is if they believe what I've just said... They believe the same as those who say God is dead and Christ was a mere man. And the fact is, even Satan knows better than that, according to the Scripture. R.C. Sproul has said that the most crucial issue for today's church is its own belief in the deity of Christ. Here's the key. When the scripture says that he is the son of God, it is affirming his deity. It is not saying he's something less than God. In Philippians chapter 2, we see his nature spoken of. And I know that Pastor Kelly preached a series through this and thoroughly handled that. Let me focus in just on verse 6 and 7 of Philippians 2. It says this, And though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here it's talking about Jesus, and it's talking about his deity, and it's saying this. Look, he, uh, he didn't have to reach out and try to get deity because he had it. He didn't need to try to obtain it It was His. And then it goes on in verse 7, says, But He made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So that's when it's talking about Him being born. Now what happened to His deity at that point? Well, this passage tells us that He did not give up His deity. He didn't leave it in heaven when He came to earth. What He did was He kept His full deity. He was still fully God, equal with the Father and the Spirit in every way, in power and glory, and yet he took on something new, and that was his human nature. We see in one of the crucial passages about this in John 1, verse 1, it talks about the incarnation. Remember, and that's this is what we talk about all through Advent, when When you hear the term incarnation, just remember, incarnate, in the flesh. And what it's talking about is God in the flesh. Here's what it says in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, John's making it clear that whoever... This one they're calling the Word is, is God. And then in verse 14, it defines who he's talking about. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what it's saying is this Jesus is fully God. He retains his deity. And yet what does he give to us? By the sending. It's God with us. In Matthew 1, verse 22. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's the key there. What difference does that make? His nature, his motive. What's it tell us? She was 15 and he was 17 when they met. They dated... In high school, nobody was surprised that when they graduated, they got married. Four years later and two children later, she found herself standing in her kitchen with a sink full of dirty dishes and diapers over on the side, and she couldn't quit crying. And she still doesn't know why she did it, but she took off her apron and walked away that day. She called later that night. Her husband said, Where are you? Her only response was a question How are the children? She called every week for the next three months. Every time her husband would tell her how much he loved her, she would ask about the children. But when he asked where she was, she would hang up the phone. Finally, he hired a private detective And he found out that she was staying in a little hotel in Des Moines, Iowa. So he got in his car, drove to Des Moines, found the hotel. And with real fear, not knowing what he would find, he went to her door. He knocked on her door and she opened it. And she melted into his arms, and they went home. Sometime later, he finally was able to ask her, Why, why all that time when on the phone I would tell you how much I loved you, why wouldn't you tell me where you were? She said, you know, at that time those were words and then you came. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. His love expressed to us by the sending of his one and only. He is the great giver. May we receive his gift of Jesus Christ with joy. Let's bow together.